Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Thank you very much. That was so kind. And thank you so much for being here. Um, and thank you for this opportunity. What a wonderful treat it is to be in Phoenix and to escape from the eternal fog of Berkeley. <laughs> Many years ago, I was driving down the coast of California with my, with my family. We have three kids, six, three, and uh, just about two. Um, and we were driving down Highway 1. Has anyone ever driven down? Beautiful, right? And so we stopped to see the elephant seals near San Simeon, where our five-year-old is very excited by animals. And so we watched them for a couple of hours, and then we drove. And about half an hour afterwards, um, the backseat is silent, which when you have three hours to go is a golden moment. Mm -hmm. And then Ezra's voice pierces the silent silence. Why am I a person? <laughs> and so I asked what do you mean? And he said, why am I not a seal? Why am I a person? He was asking, what makes me a person? But also, what, who am I? I? I know what seals are, I see them, but who am I and why am I not that? And what separates me from these other beings that I feel a sense of kinship with, but also a sense of distinction from them? That was when we had our first conversation with him about the nature of the soul. The idea of the soul in Kabbalah is a vast subject. Um, you could write a book about it. You could write a lot of books about it. In fact, any Kabbalist worth their salt at some point writes a book about the nature of the soul. They may have different titles and ostensibly call it other things, but in some ways you could say that much of the Jewish mystical tradition are explorations about what the nature of the soul is, where the soul comes from, and where it goes when we meet our end. Here's one of them. Not so exciting if you look at it with this cover, thanks to the Stanford Library. Here's this cover. It's a little bit more exciting. The book is called Shar HaGilgulim, the gateway or the gate of Gilgul, reincarnation, right? Something that is circular, the wheel of life, um, which is something that Kabbalah deals with at great, at great length, and we'll talk about that together a bit today. In reflecting on this issue of the soul and on reincarnation, we confront some of the most fundamental philosophical and existential questions. What's the point of life? What happens to us after death? Who are we as human beings? not as seals, as individuals, and as a community together. What are we here to do? The question of the nature of the soul draws together a thread of continuity between life and death and that which comes before life. 
The teachings of Jewish mysticism offer robust reflections on the soul, which are intimately connected to this question of reincarnation, which, despite what many people think, actually has a very vibrant history in the world of Jewish thought, starting in the medieval period and going up into the present. The notion of a soul as something that can be divested from a physical form isn't at all clear from the Hebrew Bible. If I asked you in rabbinic, in biblical Hebrew, how do you say soul? Anyone have any guesses? Neshama? Nefesh? Doesn't seem in the Hebrew Bible to mean um, something that eternally, uh, that uh, has any kind of endurance after the physical form. Nefesh is tightly constructed spirit and matter together, but such that don't seem like they're entirely indivisible. It's not clear where you go in the Hebrew Bible if you want to develop a theology of the soul. That's a very interesting fact. Maybe there's a verse in Daniel, which is a very late book that talks about um, the souls of the righteous that are illuminated like the stars of the sky, but there aren't that many other passages. In fact, there are many that seem to describe most of biblical theology as grounded in this world. So what do you do with verses like Exodus 31, um, that God is Shavat Vayinafash, God rests, and it's often translated and is restored, is sold Vayinafash? Does God have a soul? Are we a part of God's soul? Is God the soul of all being? The soul, capital S, that gives life and animates the world? All of those are possible. But that doesn't mean that biblical theology is all about some kind of materialism, that it's all this world and nothing else matters, right? That might be a simple reading of the book of Ecclesiastes. Eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow, who knows what's going to be. There's, that book is very much an outlier, and it's bracketed on both ends by a kind of devotional bookmark. Um, for the Hebrew Bible and for the theology of the Hebrew Bible, the physical and the spiritual are entirely intertwined with one another. Where are divine punishments and rewards meted out in, let's say, the second paragraph of the Shema or elsewhere when we read about them in the Hebrew Bible? Is it at some point long in the future? Seems like it's primarily immediate, which is to say in this world. If you walk in the divine pathways, rain comes at the right time, the land gives forth its produce and things like that, and if you don't, so the opposite happens. But in terms of a notion of a pre-eternal soul or a post-eternal soul after death, it's not easy to find a biblical precedent. This is why the stories of Job are so heartrending. If you read them according to their simple meaning, what's so sad about the book of Job? Here we have a good person, a blessed person who acts with a kind of righteousness, who suffers so much in this world, and it's precisely because of that that it feels so unjust, that it feels so unjust, that it feels so problematic. So the focus of biblical theology is really this world and our moral obligations and culpability therein. In the Gemara, in the Talmud, there's a very big difference, however. There's a clear dichotomy here between body and soul. So there's a famous parable in the, um, in the Talmud, in, in Tractate Sanhedrin, um, about God who tasks the body and the soul to be um, um, caretakers of the orchard. Has anyone heard this? Um, and one of them um, 
has no eyes and the other has no legs. And God says, okay, hold on, I'll be back. And together they work to climb up and pick the fruit. And God says, okay, so which one of you did this? And the body says, oh, it couldn't be me. I don't have any eyes. And the soul said, oh, it doesn't have, couldn't be me. I don't have any legs. I couldn't possibly have done it. So God sticks them together and says, together I hold you culpable. He says, heaven and earth, when they are brought together, I hold you culpable. What do you think the moral lesson to that is? It's kind of a bizarre story, right? There's a powerful message there. Um, that the body and the soul are joined together once more after death, and that who you are in this world inheres with you in the next. That seems to be a fundament of that story. What you do in this world matters to a tremendous degree. Now, the notion of an afterlife is really key to rabbinic theology, the notion of a resurrection. Um, it's remembered in rabbinic literature as a key difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees say that there is resurrection from the Torah, there is such a thing as a world to come, and the Sadducees say, no, no, whatever's in the Hebrew Bible, that we accept and nothing else. There's an entire theological world that they have essentially cut off. Whereas what we have as rabbinic Judaism, that we are all inheritors of, are very much in favor of a post-eternal soul, a pre-eternal soul, the notion that who you are in this world is linked to where you come from and where you are going. How do you say in rabbinic Hebrew, the time to come? Olam haba, good. What else? Right, that's, I think, the most famous one. In many ways, it's the most important. There's another one called Be'atid Lavo, in the future time. There's another one called Acharit Yamim in the end of days. There's another one called Yamot HaMashiach, in the messianic time. Um, there is another called Tchiyat Metim in the time of the resurrection. That's very interesting. At least six different terms. How do those fit together? Are they stages in a process? Are they the same? I don't think so. There's a lot of different reflections in the rabbinic time period in trying to figure out what is this question that we're all trying to answer. Where do we go after we die? Do we retain that sense of personal identity? Are we still who we are? Are we still who we are as a community? Are we still who we are as a human being, living a life that continues into the next world? Also in the rabbinic period, there's this fascinating passage that describes all of the souls in the world as coming from the goof. Maybe body or trunk. Uh, the, um, the central pillar of a tree can be called a goof. It's the beginning of the Tree of Souls. Has anyone ever read the book Tree of Souls? Howard Schwartz. It's a fantastic book of Jewish legends. Um, that has its roots, if you'll forgive me, in the rabbinic period of this notion of not only do we have souls, but we are all actually one at some point. And if we know ourselves, we can come to see how we are linked to other human beings in this world and also in the next. Um, medieval philosophers, beginning with Sa'ad Yagon in the 10th century, struggled to define the soul and its relationship to the body and God to the world around us. Much of this has to do with this understanding in the medieval world that the soul is what connects the human being to the mind and the mind to God. 
but it's not entirely so. Um, has anyone ever heard the famous Sufi metaphor of when one dies, it's like a drop returning to the ocean? There are actually versions of this in medieval Kabbalah that are directly plucked from Sufi devotional literature. Um, there's a kind of loving surrender involved in death, like, la, la, like a moth drawn to the flame. Um, a beautiful rendering of this is in Maimonides' um, Laws of Repentance. If you opened up the Laws of Repentance, what would you expect to find in Maimonides, a, you know, a, a rationalist thinker? Expect to find how to repent, right? That's the first chapter, and a little bit of the second chapter. And then he goes on and on to explore various metaphysical issues. How does God know everything, and yet we have free choice? That's an interesting conundrum that he doesn't quite solve for us. Um, in the 10th chapter, he talks about one thing, and that's the love of the human soul for God. What biblical book do you think he goes to as a proof text? Shmot? That would be one of my first guesses, but it's not it. I'll give you a hint. It's very, very obvious and very not obvious at the same time. Uh, that's the other place I would have gone, right? Psalms, Deuteronomy, right, where it says, you shall love God, right? Maybe the book of Leviticus, Psalms, which is all about wanting to see God's face. Those, those texts are sprinkled throughout, but it's not the one that really drives forward. Genesis. Uh, it's the other one I would have gone to, right? We, I don't know, how many more do we have? 20? 18? <laughs> right? We're making a good time. Job? Good guess. Song of Songs. One of the two biblical books in which God's name is not mentioned, but one of the two books that is consistently read as a metaphor for the human and divine relationship. But Maimonides, in classical fashion, changes things slightly. And instead of reading it as almost all Jewish thinkers from the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th centuries had read the book, it's not about God and Israel. It's about God and the human soul. What was a story of communal love between the divine and Israel now becomes a story of human devotion toward the divine and the love between the singular soul and God, one that begins before and ends after life. In one of the sources that you have before you, which is primarily for homework, I'll send you home to really spend some time breaking your teeth over these, as we say at the Seder, um, not to imply anything about my audience. <laughs> The um, Maimonides gets himself into trouble. I just said just a few minutes ago that for rabbinic Judaism, resurrection is one of the cornerstones of faith, right? It's listed in the 10th chapter of Sanhedrin as something that is a cardinal principle of rabbinic Judaism. And then Maimonides in the 8th chapter of this work says that in the future time, there's no body. There's just souls hanging out with God. And those souls are sustained by no corporeal means, other than God's illumination. When people read this, they go nuts. This is one of the things that gets Maimonides' books burned. This is one of the things that pushes him to the very pale of what Judaism can hold. Okay, the whole thing about Aristotle, about reinterpreting Genesis in order to fit Aristotelian principles, that we can deal with. But to say that there is no 
bodily element to the resurrection is something that rabbinic thinkers in Maimonides' time struggled to make sense of, such that they even um, um, threatened that in some cases actually did burn his writings. There's actually a, a, uh, a work attributed to Maimonides in defense of that that someone else made up to defend him. They wrote it in his name after his death and then circulated it because, of course, Maimonides must have agreed with that principle. Um, but for Maimonides, I don't think that that element was very important. For him, the mind and the soul were one, and the soul that is, um, endures after death is one of intellectual illumination, that when you die, your body fades and goes back, but it's the soul that communes with the mind of God, just as it does in the most powerful moments of religious experience in this world. To die with a kiss, says Maimonides, is to open the soul and the mind so fully to God that one is overwhelmed by the experience. Again, what, psalm, what uh, biblical book do you think he uses to prove that one? Song of Songs. <laughs> Deuteronomy is there because it's dying with a kiss, um, but it is all about Song of Songs in that passage as well. Um, okay, so now we can get to medieval Kabbalah, something I actually know a little bit about. Um, in medieval Kabbalah, there is, uh, I, I think it would be fair to say that on every other word on the page is soul. Every other word on the page is something from the Song of Songs. That's medieval Kabbalah. Um, here we find a robust theory of what the soul is, where it comes from, where it's going, and also, if it doesn't end up back in that heavenly trunk, where does it go? How does it come back down? Here we get a very th robust theory of reincarnation. There are lots of different names, including a very curious one, ha'ataka, which means a transposition or translation, that the soul is translated from one person to another. It's the same word if I was to translate from one language to another. When Jewish rationalist philosophers get wind of the notion of reincarnation, they can't stand it. They say, this can't possibly be something in our tradition. But like many things in Kabbalah, it wins by the power of its ability to grip the human soul. Um, anyone had an experience studying Zohar before? Dipped into it from time to time? Yeah, it's a very soulful document in a lot of ways. Um, the quest to study Torah in the Zohar is to get to know what is called the soul of the Torah, nishmata deoraita, the soul of the Torah. And if you really spend a lot of time, you come up with the nishmata de nishmata, the soul of the soul of the Torah. You go deeper and deeper and deeper. And just as when you get to know a human being, deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, you encounter their soul. The same is true with the Torah. But the Zohar also has very interesting things to say about reincarnation, about how some biblical characters are actually reborn as other ones. There's a, uh, when I'm teaching, um, I tell my students that in the classical Midrash, when the um, second, third, fourth, fifth century rabbis um, have two unidentified, or one identified and one unidentified biblical characters. They try and make them the same person. Um, I call that <laughs> the law of conservation of biblical characters. The Zohar does that to another degree, which is that if you have one character that dies and another one that's born, you can stick one into the other. For example, when um, the two sons of Aaron die in chapter 10 or chapter 16 of the book of Leviticus, they get reincarnated um, in their nephew, Pinchas, 
the priest who appears in the book of Numbers with great vehemence. In a section called Saba de Mishpatim, much of the exegesis is related to the story of the Hebrew maidservant in Exodus 21. Remember the Hebrew maidservant who is in bondage for some number of years is eventually let go. She goes free. The, the Zohar reads this as a story of the way that the soul comes into the body. It comes to inhabit a kind of bondage of the physical world of the body and its eventual release into the freedom, and that's playing with the biblical text, um, into the freedom of the world above. It returns to what the Zohar identifies as the, the sphera of Bina, um, which you might translate as understanding. It's the second of the higher spherot. Um, other associations with Bina are the primal mother. It's called the world of souls. It's the place of infinite rebirth. It's a place of regeneration and rejuvenation. It's the place that, according to the Kabbalists, we all journey to on Yom Kippur as we make that journey back into the heart of who we are and come out again as a new person. It's that same journey into the soulful inner world of the human heart. Any questions about what I've said so far? It's a soulful journey. The next text that you have on your page is a fantastic one called Jacob's Garment of Days. It's a passage from the Zohar. I think it reads pretty nicely. This is Daniel Matt's translation. Um, Daniel Matt, who is an incredible genius in terms of reading Zohar and an incredible genius in terms of translation and an incredible genius in terms of poetics. They just don't always come together, has done incredible things with the Zohar. And now you can actually read the entire thing in English um, in 12 volumes. It's about the way that the soul comes into the world um, for a certain purpose. And when we die, the soul comes to inhabit a garment that is woven from the deeds of this world. It's on this very strange biblical formulation. Um, you find it about Abraham and about Jacob. Abraham um, is described as old, come into days. Abraham ayazaken ba beyamim, come into days. We might translate that as seeing a lot of suns, right? Seeing a lot of mornings. Someone who has spent a lot of time on this earth. The Zohar, reading things very literally in a sense and also very poetically in a different sense, says that Avraham is our model for someone who lives their life to the fullest such that when they meet their end, all of those days come with them. Ba biyamim, come into days, means that when they come to the next world, those days come with them. The soul has been transformed by that time in this world. And when you go to the next world, you bear those things with you, those human relationships, those acts of kindness and compassion, those sacred deeds in this world are the garments, as it were, that we, leave, that we weave for the next world. You think Maimonides would agree with this? I don't think so. They're very different ways of looking at the world to come. Is it something that is essentially intellectual communion with the divine, which is what we really wish we could be doing here, but we can't? Or is it something that is a kind of continuous outgrowth of what we do here, such that even in the world after our temporal existence is finished, we bring with us that thread 
that links us to what came before and what came afterward. Yeah. Do the good part and the bad part move together? The garment, in this sense, seems to be writ almost entirely from, uh, from the good things. What's so interesting is in Hasidism, um, there's a fundamental transformation that, hide, that is almost hidden in plain sight, which is that there are no negative qualities in the human being. There are only negative expressions. Love can be expressed in positive ways and in negative ways, and it's up to us to decide one or the other. What you find in Hasidism is an embrace of all parts of the human being, such that indeed when we go on to the next world, we carry with us both the, um, to use a, uh, a Talmudic phrase, both the full tablets and the broken tablets. They both come with us because those, that's who we are. That's what we've done in this world. The Zohar is very much a medieval work. Um, it looks in the world in very binary categories. There's this side and there's that side. There's good and there's bad. And there's this world and there's the next world that may exist in that kind of continuity, but there are these very clean categories. Hasidism emerging on the eve of early modernity has a different way of looking at the human being, at the human psyche, at the human soul, and at our relationship to the world around us and to death. Does that answer the question in part? Good. OK. In the Kabbalistic world of Tzfat, um, we were just talking about going to Tzfat. Um, has anyone been to Tzfat? Spent some time there? It's an interesting place. It's been an interesting place for many, many hundreds of years. While the Renaissance was happening in Europe, there was a Renaissance happening in Tzfat for the Jewish mystical thinkers. In the 16th century, um, who lives in Tzfat? Lots of people, but who else? can't hear much. Luria, right? Rabbi Isaac Luria, known as the Ari. Um, his teacher, Rabbi Moses Cordovero, lives there. Um, anyone know what Rabbi Luria's day job was before he became a mystic? He was a pickle merchant and a spice trader. One of the only documents that we have from him is a, uh, um, a receipt for some pickles. We have a signature. Um, Isaac Luria, who is this fantastically original and fantastically important Kabbalist, in the same way that there is Maimonides, and there's everything before Maimonides, and there's everything after Maimonides, but these a turning point in Jewish history. The same is true for Isaac Luria. There is what comes before and what comes after, and he leaves his imprint on every element of Jewish thought. Um, all cultures that are related, um, all, all Jewish cultures are in some way um, deeply influenced by him. Um, he writes, uh, or at least is recorded in his name, huge amounts on the nature of the soul. This book that I lifted up just a moment ago, which didn't have this snazzy cover when it circulated in manuscript in the 16th century, um, is one of his works. And for Luria, um, he develops this notion of the Gilgul, of reincarnation, and something else which he calls Ibur, um, which can mean a kind of impregnation, but it means when souls inhabit other souls, other humans' bodies. Um, anyone seen the play, seen the, the movie, read the book, The Dibbuk? Couldn't have happened without Isaac Luria. The Dibbuk certainly predates the notion of Jewish uh, possession as a robust part of our folk culture for many years, but that notion of someone who dies and then inhabits the physical form of another, one, another human being really comes from the teachings of Isaac Luria. Um, so he describes two different kinds of Gilgul. One is when one soul, um, one, reincarnation, we might translate it as, one soul enters one body, 
And then there's another kind, which is when two or three or four souls enter a single body in the next time around. It's a very interesting way of looking at the world, right? One is that we are reborn anew, ever anew, in different forms. And another is we're sort of composites of one another. There are elements of us that are combined together such that no two human beings are ever a direct translation of something that came before, but each human being is a, a fusion together of different elements that has never been seen before and never will be seen again. This other notion, this notion of the ibur, of the uh, impregnation of the soul, which is when one soul joins another during its lifetime, um, happens for a specific purpose. Why? Either because that soul needs to be repaired, there's something that needs to happen with that soul, or to perform some sort of mitzvah that would otherwise have been impossible. He describes this as a kind of um, burst of creative spiritual energy that we can draw upon or is injected into us in moments of crisis, but also moments of great opportunity, an extra surge of soulfulness, we might describe it as, that inhabits us as we move forward. Um, he also had a very interesting theory of metoscopy. It's a very fancy way of saying staring at someone's forehead and being able to diagnose their spiritual ills. And not only what was wrong with them, but who they were. Letters would appear. Names would appear. And the root of that person's soul would, come, uh, would become clear. Why is it important to know the soul root of another human being? Because the soul is the essence of the person. The physical form is a kind of garment. Um, the soul is kind of what we would think of in terms of the self in modern parlance. But when you tell someone their soul root, you communicate something very deep to them. You tell them why they are here, who they are, where they came from, and what they must do with their limited days in this world. In these teachings, you find a well-developed notion of the five-part soul called Naran Chai Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, Chaya, Yechida, each one a more um, intense kind of soulful energy that um, connects us to the divine. You start with a very small amount that every person has, and over time, according to the investment, the more you work with it, the more you invest in it, the more you develop it and cultivate it like a garden, the soul grows and becomes more illuminated. In order to be able to do that, you have to know your soul root. Um, if I say the words shvirat hakelim, do those ring any bells with anyone? Shvirat hakelim is a part of this Lurianic myth of the breaking of the vessels. First, there was nothing but God, the infinite. And then, there was the project of creation, which required withdrawing some of that infinite divine, creating a vacuum, as it were, in which there is nothing, lowercase n this time. And then God casts divine light into a series of vessels there. There's a moment in which the light becomes too much, and the vessels break, and they shatter, 
and those sparks are lost throughout the world. So what are those sparks? Is that what you said? Souls. Souls. They're sparks of divinity, and they're human beings. They're the unique souls that are born of that moment, each one coming together to fit back into that mosaic in a different way. We're all here to try and recombine such that we can reclaim that original moment. Knowing your soul root is key to knowing who you are and what that journey needs to be. Um, so are we all old souls? Most of us are, either because we have come from someplace and have been born again or because we have been recombined. But Luria also speaks about new souls. Um, people who have never quite been in the world before, something totally new, something we haven't quite seen before. On the one hand, it's much easier for such souls to thrive because they don't have any baggage. They got nothing to work through. On the, also, on the other hand, it's really hard to be like that because you have no connection to anything that came before. You have to walk this impossibly long road in front of you. And then Luria makes a very interesting point. Why are such souls sent into the world? To help other people. To help other people along the way. This leads us to the, the reasons for why we have to be reincarnated. What might you think? Right? Now we all understand the difficult Kabbalistic metaphysics behind it. What's the reason? Why do we have to do this? Why does it have to be that way? Why are we recast in different forms? Got things to do. Unfinished business. Things that need to be done. Got to get it right. Fantastic. Why else? Correction. What's that? Correction. Correction of? Of soul. Yeah. Um, I think these two are complementary answers, um, and I want to tease them apart in slightly different ways. One is to fix something that you did wrong, and another is a missed opportunity that you haven't fulfilled yet. Both of these are given as reasons. Um, yeah? Do a lot of people recall previous reincarnations? So this is a fascinating question. And the answer is yes. Um, Gershom Sholem, who's a famous scholar of Jewish mysticism, says there's no such thing as, like, as, as um, um, first-person Jewish writing about mystical experiences. Right? If you read medieval Catholic mystics, all over the place, they talk about their own mystical experiences. Jewish mystical experiences are almost written about, almost always written about in the third person. Turns out that is not entirely true. Um, there are dream journals about people and their mystical experiences, and there are people who write about their soul roots. Um, there are people who remember what they did in previous lives. There are people who remember all the different stations that they've been in. There are people that only remember once they've been told and there are people like me who have no idea, um, but are muddling around trying to figure out what I'm here to do. But yes, there are people like that. Hello, I'm Sandy Reif, the general manager at Mount Sinai Cemetery. A warm welcome to all of you listening to this presentation. Mount Sinai is a Jewish cemetery located in North Phoenix with the beautiful Sonoran Desert and mountains as its backdrop. The cemetery was created for the entire Jewish community. Our mission is to accommodate everyone in the valley who is Jewish with no requirement of synagogue or temple affiliation. We also welcome intermarried couples. 
as a Jewish cemetery, we're closed on Shabbat, the Sabbath, as well as all major Jewish holidays. But we have a very unique feature not found in any other cemetery in the valley. At Mount Sinai, there are paved sidewalks in front of every grave. No one need ever walk on a grave. We feel we are providing the utmost of respect to the deceased and to their family. Our outdoor covered pavilion provides a convenient place for the funeral service with easy access to the grave for burial. At Mount Sinai, we believe that pre-planning is truly a gift you give to your family. No one is left with the burden of making the arrangements for you. You have the opportunity to make your wishes known and put those choices into effect. And when you pre-plan at Mount Sinai, the price you pay is guaranteed no matter how many years later the grave is needed. Whether you have just suffered a loss and require our burial services, or have decided to pre-plan and save your family the burden, our caring and very professional staff are here Sunday through Friday to provide assistance and over-the-top customer care. Please contact us when you're considering your final resting place. Our phone number is 480-585-6060. And please visit our website at www.mountsinaicemetery.com. A Jewish cemetery will become part of your legacy. Here's another reason that we're reincarnated, according to Luria. We're sent back to help others. It may not be just a personal journey. We may have done something in a previous life that was amazing, and we got where we needed to be. But we're part of a bigger story, kind of like the bodhisattva that is, remains a part of this world to help others. Here we're sent back because others need us. In, um, in a related field, um, you're sent back because you still have to find your soulmate. You can be sent back because your soulmate has to be sent back. And if your soulmate is sent back, you too come with them. They're, that partnership is key. So there's a question that, yeah? Are we ever sent back in a non-human form? Oh, we'll get there in just a minute. Yeah. But the answer is yes. Um, there's a question that you haven't pushed me on yet, which is, why do the souls need to be reborn at all? Right? I get that these are the reasons why, but why does the soul need to come out of this amazing, like, divine trunk at all? Couldn't we just be there? It sounds good to me. So the soul has a choice to, to be with, 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 with God, and it has to learn certain things. So it can, it can connect. The power of human choice and human agency um, is, a very pow is a very important one in Kabbalah, that um, things that are static, things that are um, unified in the sense of there's only one choice to be made, are in some ways uninteresting to the medieval Kabbalists. What is interesting is the world of dynamic choices, of not knowing whether it could go one way or the other, which is the world that we live in. So we are brought into this world because this is a world of free choice. And a world with free choice is a world in which actions have magnified meaning by many fold. Is that a fair way of engaging with what you said? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. So this is in contrast to, I guess, the orthodox belief Somebody dies, they go to heaven, you say Kaddish, so they can get higher up and higher up. But and there's nobody there, really, because they're all back here. Okay, so, right, so this is the 
And what about what I've heard about, you know, people talking about we're all reincarnated from the people who were at Mount Sinai, and we get different pieces of those people. That's also added. It's a part of this. It's very much a part of this. If we're all a part of that original moment of the shattering of the vessels, then we're all different permutations of those other stages as well. And the 600,000 souls at, at the giving of the Torah are also the 600,000 souls that exist in the current bodies as well. I think 600,000 in medieval rabbinic Hebrew just means um, a whole lot, right? It's not meant to be taken literally. They have another answer in addition to this question of free choice, which is that the soul is brought into the world in order to create meaning, to create illumination, to collect those fragmented sparks, the broken aspects of the self, and to heal the cosmos as a part of that cosmic story of the healing of God and the healing of the human being. Now, an important thing to note is that we actually relive this process or live this process on a daily basis. There are elements of our liturgical lives and our daily lives in which we undergo that kind of death and rebirth. What, one that you find in many different cultures, including Judaism, is when you go to sleep. It's imagined as a kind of mini-death where you return your soul on high and it comes back to you, hopefully. But that's a kind of moment of trepidation. That's why we say Shema before going to bed. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, has anyone ever seen the Tachanun prayer? It's said in the morning and in the afternoon in certain synagogues. One of the things that you do is you lay down your head after the standing silent prayer. And when you lay down your head, it's a way of almost enacting that kind of descent of death, and then you stand up, and you come back to that. But it's a way of engaging with the fragility of life, and standing up in the face of it, but undergoing that process and coming back up. Um, so now the question, can you be reborn as other stuff? What do you think the answer is? The answer is most certainly yes. Um, we're all linked. All all of, the be all of the cosmos is linked by the same vital energy, and it can take on different manifestations in different times and places. Um, but in fact, uh, yeah, I could be reborn as um, salt, water, puppy, many other things, a seal. Um, in traditional Lurianic sources, um, there's almost a sense of divine retribution, or at least consequence, if you um, engage with water in a, um, a problematic way in this world. Guess what will come back to bite you? Right? I don't know if you uh, leave the tap on when you're blushing your teeth. You'll come back as water. <laughs> um, the Hasidic sources, again, have a much more benevolent glance. Um, people sometimes getting reborn as lots of different things. And one of the reasons that for Hasidism, you can serve God through eating and drinking and through every kind of ordinary deed, no matter what you're doing, is because who knows what souls are there? Who knows what the world around us is composed of? I was taught the words only as a punishment if, 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 if we come back as, as, as other things. 
Right. I think that's true in the Lurianic sources. In the Hasidic sources, it's largely true, but not entirely sh entirely true. You can end up as lots of different things. Um, but I think it's largely true, which is to say that the norm, the assumption is that you're going to come back either as another person or as another part of a person together. And, you know, that kind of makes sense in a way because a lot of people feel God innate within nature, you know, within plant trees. So when the Hasidic masters speak about the soul of nature, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about the power and the majesty of the physical world um, as something that is also a looking glass through which we can glimpse the divine and a kind of mirror in which we see ourselves as well. Um, in Hasidism, there's this very important overcoming of the strict dichotomy between body and soul that you find in so many medieval writings, Jewish, Christian, Islamic, all across the board. In some ways, modernity is about this sort of Cartesian dichotomy. In another way, modernity is a kind of overcoming of the dualities that you find in the medieval world. And Abraham Joshua Heschel has this beautiful line um, where he says that the Hasidic masters are no longer afraid of the physical world as the medieval Kabbalists were because they were so, their spiritual lives were so robust that they didn't have to be afraid of the physical. They knew that they could transform the world around them. Um, the Hasidic sources describe sparks as gravitating toward the human worshiper in order to be uplifted, raised up, returned to their source. We also gravitate toward teachers that share our soul root. They're the ones who open up the path before us. Here in the Hasidic sources, there's again this emphasis on the here and now, olam haba, the world to come, could also be translated as the world that is coming. Not in the future, but to those who have open eyes. The world that is always coming, flowing forth like a river. There's a very strange passage in the Talmud where um, one rabbi asks another, they're hanging out in a marketplace in a shuk, um, tell me, is there anyone here who's worthy of the world to come? Lots of people in this room. I guess the question was that room. And the, um, the rabbi says, yeah, those two merrymakers, badchanim, jesters, they're worthy of the world to come. Ben Olam Haba, right? Ben Olam Haba. Why? They make people laugh. Yeah, that is really what the Baal Shem Tov says. They make people laugh. It's right there in the Talmud. Um, I, I once did a report on this, and no one really talks about this Midrash for almost 1,300 years. It's just sitting there until the Baal Shem Tov lifts it up and returns it back to the forefront of Jewish thought. Because what is devotional life about for the Baal Shem Tov? Joy and about the interconnectivity, the openness and the soulfulness of joy. And so what creates bonds between human beings and between God and the human being? It's joy. So who's worthy of the world to come? Or, to translate it slightly, who brings this world closer to the world to come? Those who bring joy to others. <laughs> the Baal Shem Tov reads, tell me if this sounds familiar from Lecha Dodi, Karva el nafshi ge'ala. It's a line from the book of Psalms quoted in the Chadodi, this hymn that we sing on Friday night, which means 
the redemption of my soul draws nigh, right? It's easy to miss, but that psalm is actually all about redemption. Um, the word ge'ala is spelled with a hey with a dot in it. That hey with a dot in it means that it is the redemption of that soul. The Baal Shem Tov says, keying in on that, each and every soul has a different kind of redemption. Each and every soul is here to do something. Each and every soul has some unique task to accomplish. One needs only the courage to go out and find it and the teacher to help us see that path. So I want to end with just a few thoughts about neo-Hasidism, which stands on the shoulders of Hasidism and takes it into the 20th and 21st centuries. Um, one thing that we haven't talked about is a kind of essentialism that you'll find in medieval Jewish thought. Um, there's a straight line from the 12th century to the 20th century in which Jews are described as having different souls than non-Jews. Is this a familiar concept? Yeah. I thought that non-Jews only, only, only have, have, have one soul. Right, so this is one way that it's phrased. Yep. A Jew has two souls and a non-Jew has one soul, right? I've, I've been told that Jews have a lot more than two. Two, three, four, five, right? We talked about five. But yeah, I mean, there are different ways of phrasing it. Um, that makes sense if you think historically what's going on in the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, right? Jews living under cross and under crescent are constantly being told that their covenant is broken, their lives are immaterial, they inhere in the world as ghosts, as a kind of purgatory. I, I can understand that theology on historical terms. In the 20th century, it's problematic for a host of reasons. Scholars who deal with, and theologians who deal with the Hasidic legacy can't avoid that topic. They have to think about it in critical ways. Some openly reject it. Some take a different tack, which is if Hasidism understands that the soul has this kind of infinite power for compassion that's uplifted by song through tears, but primarily through joy, and can unlock even the most tightly shut gates, Maybe that's something deeper about humanity. So Hasidic descriptions of the natural capacity for love, of an inborn spiritual faculty for altruism and self-transcendence could be extended to all mankind, interpreted as an element of the human condition. It's an innate spiritual faculty that all people manifest as a heartfelt quest for the divine in theologies that call for moral courage and more broadly in one's ability to rise beyond the constraints of the ego and reach for the infinite. It can be fostered through education, stirred in moments of contemplative awareness, and awoken through the honest confrontation with our fellow human beings and their soul. I want to pause here. I want to end with at least three minutes to describe the soulful journey of Passover. But I want to leave time for questions, for comments, for confused. So would, would you recommend the guide to the perplexed or the confused? I think like most people, when I read the guide for the perplexed, I come away just a little bit more perplexed. <laughs>
It's a very perplexing book. And in fact, in the introduction, Maimonides says, this will probably be a very confusing work. And if you think that I contradict myself, there are two reasons. One, I do, because I'm trying to hide the real thing. And two, you're not ready to be reading this book. So in any event, <laughs> it's not going to help you. Thoughts about the soul? Yes, please, sir. Which, which element of this? The, uh, the, uh, the concept of soul and the rebirth of the soul and the different forms you take when you come back and the purpose of the soul. Like my own teachers who work with Hasidic sources in a modern context, Arthur Green, Zalman Shechter Shalomi, and others, I look to Hasidism and medieval Jewish mysticism not for its secrets to metaphysics, but for its secrets to psychology, which is to say the way that what was once assumed to be some sort of cosmological vision can be internalized such that it does have these kind of <clears throat> profound implications for the way that we live our lives. One, the fact that we're here to accomplish something, something that we may not know what it is, but we are here to do something. It may be for a single moment, it may be for a very long period of time, but we are here for a reason. Our job is to discover that, and in some ways to construct that meaning. A second, a world full of souls is a world not to be taken for granted. It's not a world to be overwrought, to be ruled over, to be exploited. It's a world to be treated with tender care and with a sense of respect and responsibility. Another is that when I look at other human beings without in any way depreciating the value of their physical forms, I'm a student of Hasidism. The physical form is not simply a garment that can be stripped away, but something that is a, another lens through which we experience the human. Um, we look for those divine I-thou encounters between souls. And a fourth is I'm always interested to think about who are we as combinations of different elements? Um, do we live in a kind of fracture of different parts of ourselves here or there or there or there? There's a great teaching from one of the early Hasidic masters who says that um, in the book of Deuteronomy when God says, if you shall be cast aside to the uh, far ends of the heavens, I shall redeem you from there, right? In the book of Deuteronomy. Meaning if you get um, uh, exiled to the far corners of the world, I will still bring you back to the land of Israel. That's the simple meaning. Um, but if you look at it, the biblical text is speaking in the singular. In the Balatanya, um, the uh, early Hasidic master asks, um, how can a single individual be scattered? And he says, um, in a moment that I think anticipates a lot of modernity and maybe even post-modernity, um, we live scattered lives. We feel scattered at times, both in terms of our attention and in terms of the fundament of our being. The goal is to bring those elements of the self together, wrapping back to reason number one, to accomplish that task that we're here to do. Because of course, for Hasidism, this goes back to your question, Sandy, we don't leave any parts behind. We bring all those elements with us, whether they're good or whether they're bad. That judgment is not the ultimate 
it doesn't rise or fall. It's what you do with the matter of the human form and how you use who we are in order to further that project and that goal. Does that begin to answer the question? Yeah, it does. Um, you know, in uh, other contemplative traditions, as you probably know, coming from Berkeley, there's a lot of interaction between um, um, people's spirituality and modern neuroscience. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if um, the, the intellectual tradition that you're a part of is part of that conversation. Um, not much and increasingly so. I think that in the next 10 or 15 years, we're going to see a, um, a vast um, outpouring of consciousness studies. It's a, it's a sort of like early field right now in terms of the way that it's, I mean, teaching at Stanford, I get, um, I get to see the very beginnings of the way that <laughs> these <laughs> neurons are being sent out from different, um, different departments to one another, even to the religious studies department, which is kind of moribund in a lot of ways in terms of the way that it works with ancient texts. Um, but we're getting requests to work with people in psychology and in psychiatry and in different elements. Um, I think that there's going to be a whole field of religious studies and the study of consciousness and the study of the mind um, as opposed to the brain. I don't know anything about science, but I think that that's definitely on the, on the horizon. Yeah, eventually. Can the soul have any input into what form it wants to take when it comes back? Like, if your son wants to be a seal, can he say, I want to be a seal? Uh, I once heard a rabbi say, if I don't come back as a human, I want to come back as a dog in a Jewish home in Scottsdale. <laughs> uh, can you, do, do we have any input into the form we take the second time around? Very few texts imply that that is true from what I've seen. Um, that there is any kind of volition. Um, I think these texts are grappling with a fundamental feeling of loss of control that is inherent in death. There's this intense desire both to know and to be able to map and figure it out. And on the other hand, this confrontation with the ultimate quest of unknowing, this ultimate station of, of lack of knowing. After I'm gone, will I return as one or as a consequent in a year, in five years, in a thousand years? Um, the, the role of the Kaddish here is very interesting. Um, we traditionally say this, um, depending on who has passed away, for some period, um, less than a year, um, and then at yearly increments. Um, the period in which we're saying Kaddish is, you might think of as a kind of turnover time in which the, the soul is um, not yet ready to be generated anew um, and not yet ready to go up if the journey is capital J, all finished. Um, but it's a kind of, uh, a, of rebooting of the spiritual systems. So it can take, <coughs> indeed, some many periods, many uh, many months, many years um, before that happens again. And for those souls that are brought to the world um, in order to help, sometimes they, they're there for a very long time before their help is needed. And then they are broadcast down again. Yeah, sorry. You uh, mentioned God's healing 
You were talking about our healing and God's healing. Yeah, I slipped that in there, and I was trying to figure out if anyone would catch me on it. Yeah, and I was curious about what <coughs> you meant about God's healing. So the um, Ramban, Nachmanides, in one of his comments on the book of Exodus, says <coughs> um, the mitzvot were not given what he calls the tzorach hediot, for a mundane purpose. He's arguing against a kind of understanding of the mitzvot as here to teach you intellectual property or intellectual properties or um, moral attributes or some sort of theology, but not, not for any greater purpose other than that kind of self-improvement. It's a kind of instrumentalist understanding of the power of the mitzvot. He says that that's not the reason. His student um, comments in the inverse and says that they were given letzorech gavoa for a need on high, which is crucial for understanding how the Kabbalists under, um, uh, interpret the role of the commandments. Why do you do the commandments for the Kabbalists? Because God needs that healing. God's fractured in the same way that the world is fractured. So there is this infinite God that is beyond all, and that's God that is beyond the Sfirot. It's called Ein Sof, the infinite. But there's this, this other aspect of the divinity that is broadcast into this world that is in need of human partnership, that is in need of human agency, that is in need of the healing that only we can bring. As we work for a better future and transform the world by uplifting the sparks, by acts of compassion and open-heartedness, that is a kind of healing of the divine. So is that a reflection of our imperfection? As one of my teachers is wont to say, certain theological hall, um, um, halls of mirrors can be opened from either side. <laughs> maybe it's our imperfection that we broadcast to God, and maybe it's vice versa. Do you happen to know the reference of the Baltimore Post's statement that clowns are worthy of the world to come? Um, yeah, I mean, we're in where it appears. Um, I can send it to you easily if you send me an email. It occurs 20 times in the writings of just one of his disciples, which tells you something. One of two things. Either he said it a whole lot of times, <laughs> or it, it really stuck with that person. And every time he's writing out a Devar Torah, no matter what, he wants to quote that one thing from the Baal Shem Tov. Maybe he was a clown. <laughs> yeah, maybe it was a clown. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about, about unifications? Uh, the mystics uh, talked about uh, the idea of uh, unification, uh, and you talked about the fractured world and things like that. And you talked about the Ain Sof, which is essentially, and Rabbi Green says that for the hidden God, refers to Ain Sof to the hidden God, which is not fractured. That's, that's the wholeness. Mm -hmm. And God purposely started fracturing in creating the world. I mean, that's the, the first thing, is separating light from darkness, separating. So all the fracturing is happening on purpose. And the mystics, I understand, are saying the purpose then is to get back to the unification. Mitzvot, we do that. And uh, so we're, what we're trying to do is get a sense of the wholeness of the Ein Sof. And as Heschel writes a lot about, bring that moment of transcendence through the vote <laughs> or through other activities uh, back into our everyday lives, and that's what does the 
elevation. Can you talk more about that and what, uh, what Neil Hasidim might have to say about that? You've said it so beautifully. I'm not sure I have much to add. Um, the moment of tzimtzum, of the contraction of the infinite divine light, um, in medieval Kabbalah is almost always described as a tragedy, as a catastrophe. The breaking of the vessels is this cosmic shattering. It's the worst thing that could have happened, um, and it breaks the cosmic unity. What happens in Hasidism is a subtle shift. Instead of an act of tragedy, it's described as an act of compassion. Why? Because it's only in that world that our lives can be, that our lives can have meaning, that we can be agents. The, if we're talking about Rabbi Green, I'll quote one of his lines that he says quite often, um, that one of the greatest gifts that the divine has bestowed upon us is the illusion of our own identity. That only makes sense. That can only be in a world of alterity, in a world where there can be I and thou, um, in which individual souls may be linked on the highest level and seen as disparate in this world. There are many different kinds of unifications. There's the unification of the human being with a physical object that lies in front of me. I uplift the sparks by engaging with the world, not by trying to pierce through it, by engaging with it in a deep way and uplifting it and transforming it. You'll see there's an amazing text from the uh, Ben Ishchai, um, a Moroccan uh, Baghdadi Kabbalist in the packet that I've given you about a blessing that we say after eating certain foods, um, where he talks about the power to uplift um, uplift the world through our, through even through our act of eating and what that should do, right? We shouldn't just be consuming, 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 but we should be treating it as this moment of divine human um, uh, interaction in which we are also engaging with other people who have walked before. Um, there is the unification drawn between the spherot, between the different elements of God that are in fracture in the com contemporary world. There's the yichud that is drawn between two human beings in a moment of intense communion, what Bubu will call the I and thou relationship. Um, and then there is the ultimate yichud, this attempt to unify and unite um, the world, not to what it was, but what it can be in the future. No. Um, <clears throat> I think undergirding this is an acknowledgement that, as we say in the book of Psalms, lo hametim yahalleluya, that the dead cannot give praise to God. <clears throat> the body is not to be maligned. The body is a gift for the time that we have it. And um, it's a vessel, it's a sacred vessel, it's one to be used, it is one to be, um, to be brought to bear in this sacred journey, um, <clears throat> but except through being inborn in another, as Luria says, this sort of notion of the ibor, um, the soul is disconnected from this world if it can't be expressed through the physical body. The physical body is really key. Um, the physical body is key to rabbinic theology, it's key to medieval theology, it's key to early modern theology, it's key to modern theology. Um, th the human body is held up as sacred in the Jewish tradition. So when 
people feel that someone who has passed is watching over them or who has helped in some way with something in their life that can't? I think those are moments that if I was using my spiritual vocabulary, I would describe as a moment of vibor, a moment in which the, um, the thin space in between this world and the next has somehow um, gotten a little bit thinner. And when you feel that kind of acute <coughs> presence, uh, whether it's channeling within us or within other people, uh, in, in no way would I deny that. Um, on the contrary, it could be that that's what Luria is talking about. Um, because there it's not simply um, a soul somewhere else, like, you know, playing pinball down below, but um, with that kind of powerful resonance that comes through engagement with the physical world. And I don't think that's a semantic difference. I think that there's a real a distinction in the way that I would portray that. I just thought of this two questions. The second one I just thought of, which I'll ask first, which is backwards. Um, who does the mix up? Is it the soul or, or, or is it the body? And then I'm going to come back to my other question. I can tell you. It's the inverse of that funny story in the Talmud. Right? The funny story in the Talmud is if the body and the soul have to get together in order to do the wrong thing, it's both. It's both. You mentioned something I'm not 100% sure if I have it right. I understand about soul, but did I hear right that it can be broken up and brought into different bodies and soul-body connections, not just one or a hundred or a thousand or a million? Yep, so there's two different kinds of reincarnation. One is a one-to-one -one ratio, mm -hmm. right? And the other is a, uh, okay, that's the end of my math skills, um, a different kind of ratio in which the soul can be broken up um, into many different bodies and could be that I'll come back and I'll be the same soul born into a different body with maybe some memory, maybe no memory. Could also be that a tiny little bit of me will get sprinkled out throughout lots of different people. Maybe all my students, I don't know. <laughs> now what about people who convert to Judaism? Do they suddenly gain a new soul, or is it, or is it just finding the soul they already had? <clears throat> you find both descriptions in the world where there is an assumption that those two different souls look different. If you open up the Maimonidean corpus, you will not find such an idea, because human souls are human souls. In the mystical tradition where you have this kind of essentialist reading, you find some that describe um, people who convert as always having had a Jewish soul or being infused with a new Jewish soul at that moment. Um, if you look at the Maimonidean corpus, you don't see that because human souls are human souls. Yeah. One more question, and then I'm going to leave you with one other thought. How much difference does it make <laughs> I'll answer that with my next point, um, which is about construction of meaning, meaning in sacred time. Kabbalah, and especially Hasidism, sees the grand theological narrative of the descent into Egypt and the redemption therefrom as a personal story of the redemption of the soul. The exile into Egypt is the descent of the soul into this world, or the personal journey into Mitzrayim, which could also be read Mitzar Yam, to the constricted straits of consciousness. 
to a place where we feel, as one of my kids says, crunched, where we feel like we're being closed in upon. Redemption, by contrast, happens in a moment of soulful awakening as we gather up the sparks and are led through the parted waters to a moment of illumination. And then the desert, <laughs> wandering around. <laughs> Things that were clear are back to being opaque. We struggle, we strive for seven weeks. Those are the seven weeks in between Passover and Shavuot. And what are we doing in that time? Building back up that a moment of awakening through 49 days of hard work. One of the examples I give to my students is the um, the samurai sword, which is forged in a different way than many other swords. In order to create the power of the blade, it's hammered out and folded back, and hammered out and folded back. That's what you do with bread also, and folded back. Something of that happens in our own religious lives. We stretch to new moments and then get squashed back. And we stretch and come to a new realization and get squashed back. But the end result is both more resilient and more rigid in the sense of being firm and strong. At the end of this process is the 50th day, Shavuot. 50 is the number that's associated with Bina, with a world of souls, with the revelation of Torah, and an even higher measure of redemption. So we come into this world fraught with struggle, a kind of wilderness in many ways. We're here for a purpose, to heal the self, to heal the cosmos, to heal the divine, to help other people. And at the journey's end, we return back to the infinite wellspring from which our soul emerges. We do so, hopefully, having left an imprint of our soul upon this world. And with the soul having been transformed and illuminated by its journey across the numbered days of the human life. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.